This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. My name is Gage. And my name is Ray. And you are listening to Report. A true crime podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Sit. 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 Every single time, like before we hit that record button, I tell myself, I'm not going to make it weird. And then the minute you hit record, (laughs) what do I do? I make it weird. (laughs) Every single time. We must assert our dominance. The weird of the weirds. The weird of the weird, the weird of the ways, the ways of the weird. This is the way. (laughs) Of the weird. So, hey everybody, if this is your first time listening in with me and Ray, then hi, hello, and welcome. Welcome. We're super happy to have you. We hope you're having a good day and a good week and a good And as we also always say, if you're a returning listener, then like double, triple, quadruple the welcome. Welcome. We're so happy that you decided to to stick around. Well, hello there. It's nice to meet you. (laughs) I do want to make this intro a little straightforward because uh, today's episode is going to be a lot. We're still in six weeks of suffer. Oh, yeah, definitely. (sighs) Which is why I for sure don't want to waste any time. But before we dive into things, I want to take a quick second to talk about our Patreon. Um, If you guys follow our Instagram or our Facebook pages, then you've already seen this update. But for those of you that listen that maybe don't have us on social media, I just kind of want to take a quick minute to fill everyone in. Basically, when me and Ray created our Patreon... We first made a account that was specifically for a patron, like not a creator account, but rather a customer account. We have no idea what we're doing, and it shows. (laughs) Um, So when we got our creator page up and running, things were going fine, but we got an email from Patreon saying that our page was removed. And yeah, Ray and I put a deletion request for our non-creator account And I don't know if it was a misunderstanding on their part or if things got mixed up or maybe both the accounts were connected by the same email. I'm not sure. But when they processed our deletion request, they deleted our actual account. Yay. Love that for us. So we immediately contacted support and we tried taking steps to see if maybe we could get our page back. Unfortunately, there is not a way for that to happen because it's already been removed. So, 
We've went through the process of making a, another creator account. This one's going to be permanent. There are no deletion requests at all. We are sorry for any inconveniences that it caused. And if you already were a patron to us and you already paid, I am terribly sorry. Feel free to wait some time before you resubscribe if you would like to do that so you don't get charged twice in a small period of time. Uh, so yeah, that's all we can do. Hopefully by the time you guys hear this Thursday, our page will already be up and running and things will be back to normal. It's going to be exactly the same. Our tiers are going to be the same. Everything will pretty much be the same. It's just going to be a new page, and this one for sure is not going to get deleted. So we just wanted to take a second and fill you in. If you already were a patron and you can't find our page, that is why. So just give us a few days and that will be worked out. I promise. And we're going to make sure that we update our show notes that have the Patreon link. So that way, when you do go to the link, it will take you to the new page. Right. Everything will just be current and you won't have to worry about fiddling between two pages. We'll have everything set to where you can just find the one. But it really sucks, though, because we lost everything. So thank you guys for those of you who did donate to us. Thank you again. You're still our Gorgoats. We don't care. You're still the Gorgoats. You're still, you're always going to be our Gorgoats. (laughs) So... Now that we've got the Patreon stuff out of the way, I just want to go ahead and dive in because woo-wee. I'm not ready. So this is week five of six weeks of suffering. The last three weeks in particular were extremely heavy. The Columbine episodes definitely stuck with me a bit. I'm still recovering. You did incredible. Thank you. Like, I'm sure we are all very much still recovering from that. And I wish that I could say that we were going to take a mental health break today or maybe do something a little less horrible, but unfortunately, we are not. No. I am only going to gradually decrease the vibe further. My episode today will be part one of two, and we're going to be talking about Dennis Rader, or as he's also known as the BTK killer. Ugh. This man truly gets under my skin. I'm telling you, like with some of the killers and stuff that we've covered on this show, you'd think that they'd all have this effect on me, but that's not exactly the case. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think they're all horrible monsters and I can't stand any of them, but there's some things and layers to Dennis Rader that just, I don't even know how to really explain it. He just really, really makes me angry. Like, I won't even lie. I struggled putting this episode together because I was just completely over it before I even started. Oh, no. So, like, yeah, Dennis is truly insufferable. Another fun fact for you, Dennis Rader was the very first serial killer I ever learned about several years ago. Even though he makes me sick to my stomach with rage, his case still fascinates and terrifies me nonetheless. So let me give you a very brief overview If you aren't familiar with this case, then I want you to have an idea of who Dennis is before we jump into everything. And the reason why he hates him so much. It's going to be awful. Uh, You can consider this part of the intro a vibe check, per se. Oh, no. So, Dennis Rader is an American serial killer who terrorized the city of Wichita, Kansas for decades. He committed his first murders in 1974 and his last murder in 1991. So, in that 17-year period... Dennis Rader claimed the lives of 10 people, 
two of which were children under the age of 12 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah. And children? Children. I he, thought it was just grown-ups. No, he killed two kids. And crazy enough, it took another 14 years after his last murder in 1991 for him to get caught and identified by police. So his reign of terror lasted for about 30 years before he was caught. Yeah. It took that long. Now, some other things to know about Dennis is that he's a complete narcissist and an attention seeker. You'll see that very clearly as we make it through this story. He actually named himself BTK, which if you don't know, BTK stands for bind them, torture them, kill them. Oh, fuck. But the media did not give that name to him. He named himself because he thought he was just so badass and he deserved his own serial killer name type shit. Like he's a little fucking douchebag is what he is. Like what we were talking about in the 70s where everybody was getting these cool serial killer names, supposedly, you know? That's what I'm saying. But at least other killers like, you know, like Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer... Uh, Richard Ramirez, at least the media gave them their names. That's not the case here. Dennis literally named himself. I mean, he is a narcissist. This is what narcissists do. Like, he really thought of himself as one of the greats when it came to serial killing, but he also had, like, no originality at the same time. He took inspiration from other serial killers when he planned his crimes, such as Bundy, for example. And Dennis also wanted his very own murder barn. Oh, uh, murder barn. Murder barn. He wanted a fucking murder barn. I'm telling you, he is the dumbest of dumbasses. A murder barn. Yes. Um, another thing that made Dennis quite famous was his game of cat and mouse that he played with the police throughout the 30-year span it took for him to get caught. He was writing letters to the police back and forth. He was planting clues around town for them to find just all kinds of crazy shit. And we're definitely going to get into all of it. Wow. He tried his hardest to come across as this super genius killer mastermind, but he wasn't. I think that the media made him out to be far more intelligent and calculated than he actually was. Well, I for mean, sure. sensationalism, you know. And although I will be roasting this idiot throughout my episode, <laughs> I don't want to take away from what he did at the same time. Um, I don't want to take away from the families and the people that he destroyed. He may be a complete dumbass and cookie cutter in a lot of ways, but mm -hmm. this man still very much committed some truly heinous crimes. And I do believe wholeheartedly that he is evil even more than he is stupid. <laughs> So Dennis Rader was a family man and a pillar in his community. He lived at home with his wife and two children. He was a husband and a dad. He was a Boy Scout leader, and he was an extremely active member of the Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita. He completely had this facade that he was this good, great, all-American man, but he wasn't. Behind closed doors, he was nothing short of an absolute monster. And not only did he commit these absolutely awful crimes but he hid his crimes and this whole double life from his family whoa no one knew anything in the eyes of his family dennis was just this wonderful loving father and husband no one had any idea <laughs> that's the part that scares me the most about people like you could literally have a whole nother side of you like a whole nother alter ego just out here doing Fuckery. You, like, would, just... you would never know. God. So his daughter 
Carrie Rawson wrote a book about her experience growing up with Dennis as a father and how it impacted her greatly when she learned the truth of what he had done. Oh, wow. The name of her book is called A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. I will be leaving a link in the show notes if you would like to purchase yourself a copy, so be sure to check that out. I just couldn't imagine what, you know, she and her family went through. I mean, one day he's this great loving father and you have all of these fond memories with him. And then the next you learn that he's this sadistic fucking killer who was responsible for taking the lives of 10 people over three decades. And I I only imagine that that could make you ask the question of whether them being a good father was real or whether it was manipulation. Like, that is I, I so mean, scary. I wouldn't know what to do with any of that. And in a lot of ways, I think his family are also victims in all of this because he hid this from them. They had no idea. And just the shock of that after so long... Like, his children were grown yeah. when they found out that their father was BTK. Wow. So they went their whole lives with their dad, and then just to find this out, it's just fucking crazy. As far as my sources for this case go, I used quite a few, but there is one source in particular that I would like to shout out, and it's another book. It's called Confessions of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer, and it's by Catherine Ramsland. Okay. If you don't know who she is, Catherine is an author and professor of forensic psychology and criminal justice at DeSales University, Mm -hmm. and she's very often referred to as an expert when it comes to the topic of serial killers. She also spent a significant amount of time studying Dennis Rader. She interviewed him extensively and worked with him extensively, so her book on the case is absolutely amazing. Like, she goes way deep into her own psychological analysis and just, like, everything— And there's a lot of things in her book that came straight from the mouth of Dennis Rader himself. It's a lot of his firsthand accounts. Wow. (laughs) So it's a, yeah, it's a fantastic resource for this case. Her book wasn't my main source, but I for sure did read and use parts of it because I think hearing things right from the source is important. So I will have some quotes and stuff from Dennis as we progress through everything. So again, yeah, I just wanted to shout that out if you'd like to grab a copy of that book i will also leave a link in the show notes for that and uh yeah i guess now that that's all out of the way we can dive into the world of uh dennis the menace raider it's gonna be a really shitty ride it's gonna be a real shitty ride you did not just name this man dennis the menace oh yeah i did because he's nothing short of that he's a stupid fucking menace need to find out more information. On that particular day, the 15th day of January, 1974, can you tell me where you went to kill Mr. Joseph Otero? Mm, I think it's 1834. Uh, Edgemore. You were engaged in some kind of fantasy during this period of time? Uh, yes, sir. Now, when you use the term fantasy, is this something you were doing for your personal pleasure? Uh, sexual fantasy, sir. BTK was literally the guy next door with a wife and two kids. Uh, I had never strangled anyone before, so I really didn't know how much pressure you had to put on a person or how long it would take. Uh, nobody answered the door, so I went around to the back of the house, uh, cut the phone lines. I could tell that there wasn't anybody in the uh, north apartment. Uh, broke in and waited for her to come home in the kitchen. What happened then? I uh, finally got the hand on her and got a... Uh, nylon sock and started strangling. So you wrapped this stocking around?
Yes. Nobody would have imagined this church leader, this father, this good husband, as somebody that could even contemplate the murders that he committed. I totally forgot to say this earlier, too, uh, but for part one of this case, I want to take you guys through his early life, which wasn't all that eventful, actually, but there are some notes to take from it. And I also want to go through his first seven murders. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a rough ride. Then next week for part two, we will go through his last three murders. We're going to get into his famous game of cat and mouse with the authorities, him getting caught, his trial, just all of that stuff. Next week will be the conclusion of this case. Thank goodness. This is not going to be a three-parter, like I promise. <laughs> oh, man. So, you were like, I am so done with you? Yeah, no, I'm, I, no we're not doing that, this two parts. <laughs> I am not spending three weeks talking about your ass. No, definitely not. So let's begin. Dennis Lynn Rader was born to his parents, William Elvin Rader and Dorothea May Cook Rader, on March 9th, 1945, in the town of Pittsburgh, Kansas. He was the oldest of four boys. His younger siblings are Paul, Jeff, and Bill Rader, and Dennis and his siblings would grow up in Wichita. Now, as I said, Dennis really didn't have a crazy childhood. With most serial killers or people that grow up to commit extremely violent crimes, nine times out of ten, you'll find that said person had a horrible childhood filled to the brim with abuse and, you know, whatever else. Yeah. You see that often. And trauma sustained from abuse during childhood will most of the time play a big part in things. But this is not the case with Dennis Rader. He did not experience any of that. It is said that Dennis and his younger siblings all had a pretty good relationship with their parents. Dennis nor any of his siblings ever claimed that they were abused in any way. And from everything that they've said, plus what I've been able to find, William and Dorothea seemed to be good parents. So Dennis's father, William, he was a U.S. Marine, and he for sure was strict with his children, but mm -hmm. not violently abusive. He was no more strict than any other kid's dad was in that time period, I don't think, you know? I mean, you remember what I said about the teachings of Uncle Sam right at home. Right, right. I mean, everybody was strict, and that seems to be the case here. Not violently abusive, but there was order. Wow. There's really nothing significant to note with that. Um, his mother, Dorothea, she worked as a bookkeeper, and she also had a knack for mathematics. And these are traits that Dennis would claim later in his life that he got from his mom, mm -hmm. his love of math and the ability to be good with numbers. Dennis was described as being very quiet and very shy when he was a kid. He didn't start to break out of his shell until his early 20s. He definitely wasn't as social as the other kids, and his childhood, again, for the third time, I mean, it was pretty average. It only got really fucking weird and twisted because Dennis made it that way. So Dennis claimed later in his life that he started torturing and killing animals at a very young age. He would take Damn. cats and dogs and he'd strangle them to death. And sometimes... Oh my God. Yeah, and sometimes he would hang these animals. And he was only a kid, like a couple of years old, and he's doing this shit. And it gets weirder, much weirder. There was another instance when Dennis was very young, I'm thinking maybe seven or eight years old, but he was at home one day with his mom, and his mom's ring got caught on a spring in their couch, and she started panicking because she couldn't get her finger loose. So she's crying, and she's freaking out, and she's telling Dennis, you know, go get help, like, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. And Dennis described in his own words later that seeing his mom in this helpless situation where she was afraid and panicking 
gave him the first feelings of sexual arousal. Dennis later attributed this experience to how his sinister fantasies and impulses began to take shape. He started developing fantasies involving women being in completely vulnerable and helpless situations. As a child, Dennis said that he was also aroused when he was spanked. And as he grew older, he developed a habit of binding himself with rope while he masturbated. And like, the, like in an autoerotica asphyxiation yes, kind of way? Yes. And the whole connection between his dark fantasies and sex stayed with him. Later on, when he actually starts killing people, Dennis specifically named the orgasms he would have while he was killing people. Do you want to know what he named them? Oh, God. Do you want to know? Are you ready? Yeah. Sparky Big Time. What the fuck? He was having lots of Sparky Big Time. (laughs) Yeah. What? What? Yeah. How the fuck? This is the kind of person we're dealing with. Sparky. Oh, oh, Sparky Big Time. It's so fucking awful. Like, I'm just, I just can't help but roast him. Like, that's the stupidest shit I've ever heard in my life. Bitch, the fucking, the visual that I just got in my brain. I am. He is is so dumb. (laughs) Now, going back to the family dynamic and the home life. There are some people out there that do believe Dennis was abused in some horrific way. I mean, how else can you explain what he grew up to do, right? Yeah. So this quote is from a psychologist and professor at Gulf Coast University, Terrence G. Leary. He helps lead one of the largest databases on serial killers. And in an interview posted by Heavy.com, he expressed that he believes Dennis was subjected to some form of extreme abuse. He said, quote, Dennis Rader has been an enigma to many of us in the field because I don't think the people who claim to be experts are regarding Dennis, and I'll tell you why. They say he was squeaky clean, oldest of four boys, very traditional parents, traditional family, went to school, did the right things, etc., so there were no clues, end quote. Then Leary further states in this same interview, quote, He was terribly cruel to animals. He also engaged in mutilations of some degree. He would torture to a large degree his victims, all ten of them, intense torture, really, really cruel torture. And he would get some close to death and then revive them so they could live this horrific experience again. And he would do that simultaneously. It's not only a very evil, heinous act, but it is driven by someone who is exposed to horrific abuse. So something is hidden here. This is a puzzle not all is meeting the eye here, end quote. So I definitely think those quotes are interesting and it presents another side of perception into the matter. Given what Dennis Rader did and the kind of monster he grew up to be, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how someone could, you know, turn out like that seemingly out of nowhere, right? Right, right. And ultimately, we won't know exactly what Dennis's life was like because we aren't him and we didn't live his life. There are just no records, no reports, no anything that would point to him or any of his siblings being abused. Dennis himself even said that he wasn't abused at all. He only held a slight grudge against his mother because she didn't pay him enough attention. I'm not completely erasing the possibility that he was abused. I'm just saying from what it looks like and from what I could find, it seriously doesn't seem like he was. Wow. And I am in no way a forensic psychologist, and I am not an expert on any of this. But I do believe that those quotes from Leary slightly touch on what I was saying in the intro about how 
I think a lot of media coverage on Dennis made him out to be so much more calculated and intelligent than he really was. Yeah. And when Larry spoke about how Dennis would strangle someone to the point of death and then he would revive them and bring them back, then strangle them again, you know, that whole thing. I will touch on it more when we get there, but I want to go ahead and say that Dennis didn't do that. As in, he wasn't in control enough nor smart enough to literally strangle someone to the point of death and then bring them back in this calculated manner. He just didn't do it. Does he have any type of medical experience? No. No, not so at all. So then... But the, the thing is, like, you hear people bring that up all the time. But Dennis Rader said in his own words that when he strangled his victims that he didn't know how to do it. He said the reason his victims kept, quote, coming back, so to say was because he was failing to strangle them correctly. He greatly underestimated how hard it was to strangle someone to death. So it wasn't a matter of him being this super calculated psychopath, but rather he was a complete fucking dumbass that didn't know what he was doing. And I'll definitely, you know, bring it up again when we get into his uh, murders, but I just wanted to throw that in real quick that he didn't do that. But I mean, like, how do you really know what you're doing when you're trying to kill someone? I mean, true, but I, I guess the only comment I have for that, like, killing is fucking horrible. All serial killers are horrible. But when you see Dennis and you hear how he went about things, he was so not fucking organized or with it like several other killers are with it and i hate to put it that way but he is just the sorriest excuse for a fucking person and a killer like he just did not know what he was doing straight up he did it and you're gonna see that time and time again the proof that he did not know what he was doing gotcha continuing on the ring incident with his mom was only the beginning of the bizarre shit that dennis would do Aside from torturing animals, he also started developing gradually more intense and violent fantasies involving control, bondage, and asphyxiation. Dennis, as a child, also had an obsession with an actress named Annette Funicello, who was one of the Mouseketeers in the original Mickey Mouse Club series that ran in the 1950s. Oh, wow. Dennis was just completely obsessed with her, and he started cutting out pictures of her, and he would draw ropes and other various things over her picture, and then he would, like, keep it. <laughs> Sorry, bro. That's a little fucking weird. It's a little fucking weird. And as he got older, he started doing this thing where he'd cross-dress in clothing items that he stole from his victims or people's houses, and he would wear them. Um, he would also wear, like, this, I guess you could call it a woman mask type thing okay uh but he would wear all these garments and nightgowns and underwear and shit and he would wear the mask and then he would tie himself up with rope and he would pose in various positions he was acting as his victims basically he'd even put bags over his head with belts around his neck and just everything and he would photograph himself so he could then use these pictures later as a spank bank i mean listen if 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 cross-dressing is your thing, I mean, clothes are just clothes, right? They don't have a gender. But, like, if cross-dressing is your thing, then by all means, go for it, dude. But this guy in particular, but this that, is kind of fucking weird, but that's bro. But that's what I'm saying about Dennis. You look at that, and it's like the cross-dressing is not the weird part of this. The, it's literally it's, everything it's posing, else. Yeah, it's the posing as the victims. And and, and trying up. to suffocate himself, and, and he's posing in these photographs so he can then masturbate to himself i just had an image of 
Dennis Rader with a Walmart bag over his head. Like, it's, I'm telling you, it's fucked up. Like, I will show uh, you some of these pictures. They're really, really just unsettling. The vibe is not likable. And this next part is pretty fucked up. Going back, you know, on the story of his childhood, I'm not sure if he was in elementary school or maybe even middle school when this happened. Mm -hmm. But there was an incident where Dennis was at school and his teacher called him out for misconduct. And he took it personally. He felt like his teacher had humiliated him, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that same day, Dennis went to her house where he watched her through her window. And when she started to undress... Dennis took out a rope that he brought with him. He tied it around his neck, choking himself, no. and then he masturbated until he climaxed. No! What? Yeah. What? And that's also a thing that he did. Like I mentioned briefly earlier, he developed like young. He was tying himself up and masturbating and trying to, you know, choke himself out and crazy shit. <laughs> so, yeah, he went and watched his teacher and he just you know did it did his thing it's fucking weird and again he was young so he's killing and hanging animals he's becoming a peeping tom he's doing this you know stealing women's underwear and trying to tie himself up while wearing things you know it's it's, it's really weird shit got weird really quickly and as dennis got older he hid all of this from his parents and his siblings and the few friends that he had no one knew that quick, he was doing any of this. Quick side note, there is no kink shaming here, but like in this regard, it's it's really, yeah, it's weird. It's weird, it's weird, it's weird. Yeah, it's definitely all weird. Like, no kink shaming, but you should not be watching people through their windows, A. That's creepy. That's like the first thing. And like, I don't know. It's just there's a lot of elements that like make that weird. There's a lot of weird here. Maybe you shouldn't be watching people through their fucking windows, Dennis. Maybe you shouldn't be stealing their underwear and, and this other weird shit, Dennis. Like, uh, I don't oh, know. She you humiliated know? me. So let me go hide in the bushes and tie a rope around my <laughs> neck and sparky big time. <laughs> sparky big time. It's fucking insane. I'm telling you. So... Dennis would go on to graduate from Wichita Heights High School in 1963, and over the next year after that, he worked at a grocery store. In the year 1965, Dennis enrolled in the Kansas Wesleyan College in Salina, which was too far away from Wichita for him to live at home, so he ended up going to this school for two semesters, and then he dropped out. Mm -hmm. That following summer in 1966, at the age of 21 years old, Dennis joined the U.S. Air Force, and he would serve for four years. Now, when Dennis joined the Air Force, he did his basic training out in San Antonio, Texas. Mm -hmm. And then after that, he spent some time stationed at the Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls. I believe in 1967, he was also stationed in Mobile or Mobile, Alabama, I think, uh, for two years. And from 1968 to 1970... Dennis was actually stationed all over the world in places such as Turkey, Japan, Greece, and even Korea. So, yeah, they kind of had him all over the place for a bit. Man. During his four-year service in the Air Force, Dennis received the rank of sergeant, and he also received the Air Force Good Conduct Medal, the National Defense Medal, and the Small Arms Expert Marksmanship Medal. Through his service, he upheld a few different duties, but he mainly worked with antenna installations. In the year 1970, Dennis was discharged from active service, and he returned back to Wichita. He was 25 years old when he left the Air Force. Okay. 
Within a year of moving back home to Wichita, Dennis met a woman named Paula Dietz, and they met at the Christ Lutheran Church that he went to. They hit it off pretty quickly, and on May 22, 1971, the two got married, and then they moved out to a suburb in Wichita called Park City to settle down. And over time, Dennis and Paula ended up having two children together, Brian and Carrie. Okay. Over the first two years of his marriage, Dennis would work for a supermarket, and he also worked for a short time uh, at the Coleman Company, which was a very large outdoor and camping supply chain in Wichita. In July of 1973, Dennis went on to get his dream job, which was working for an aircraft manufacturing company called Cessna. And Dennis absolutely loved this job, and from what I understand, he did pretty good at it. But he only worked for Cessna for a few months before he was laid off. And this was a huge blow to Dennis. He was extremely angry and upset about losing his job with Cessna. He said in his own words that getting laid off from this job is what motivated him to go through with his first home invasion. Oh, wow. He literally broke in to someone's house on the same day he got fired from Cessna. And he claimed that he was angry at the system and he just wanted to do something deviant to release his frustrations, which I honestly think that's a load of bullshit. In my opinion, he was clearly going down a horribly dark path before he got this job at Cessna. Right. I think he's just trying to make an excuse for himself by blaming his behavior on him losing his job. And trying to justify it, yeah. Exactly. He was very much a monster before any of this happened. Just keep that in mind. So after Cessna, his next job, which he had long term, was installing home security systems for ADT. Dennis Rader was going into people's homes and installing security systems, and he got this job after he started killing people. What? So that's a little scary to think about. Like, the man that this whole community is terrified of is the same man installing security systems into people's homes to keep them safe. And knowing every single blind spot there is. Right. And Dennis got a kick out of that. And you'll see as we go forward that he had this thing with trying to fool his victims into thinking they were safe. It's like this whole fucked up thing he had where he loved installing security systems and seeing the layouts of these people's homes because he knew he could then later come back and do what he wanted to do. He just got like a thrill out of it. That's it. I don't trust anybody <laughs> i'm telling you and uh he started working for adt after he committed his fifth murder in 1974 oh my god <laughs> so i'm just throwing that in uh but back to that main story it would be just a few months after getting laid off from cessna in 1974 that dennis would commit his first murders and that's unfortunately what we're about to get into but before we do I just want to warn everyone that it is about to be rough, like really, really rough. Uh, I don't want any of you going in blind to this. Dennis Rader's first murder was a quadruple homicide. Damn. He brutally murdered four members of the Otero family, and two of the four victims were children ages 9 and 11. And it is just brutal. Like, I don't mean brutal as in blood and gore because Dennis wasn't that type of killer but like still it is absolutely evil and barbaric so I just wanted to let you guys know that before I start telling you everything this is really not something I want you guys to be uh, blindsided by because it's that bad so let me introduce you to the Otero family 
They had just moved to Wichita a few months before the murders took place in 1974. The family consisted of Julie Otero, who was 34 at the time, her husband Joseph Otero, who was 38, and their five children, Charlie, Danny, Carmen, Joseph Jr., and Josephine. Joseph Otero had worked in the Air Force from the time he was 18 years old, and before he moved his family to Kansas, they were living in Puerto Rico. In 1973, Joseph retired from the Air Force as a master sergeant, and in the fall of that same year, he moved his family out to Wichita. The family lived in a single-family home located at 803 North Edgemore Street, and Dennis watched this family for weeks leading up to when he attacked them. And that's another thing to know about Dennis. When he would stalk his victims, he called it trolling. 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 Like, troll. I trolled. Literally. Like. His whole process of looking for potential victims included prowling, trolling, and then stalking because he's a fucking loser. So... Dennis would often drive his wife Paula to and from work, and one day while he was out driving around, trolling, stupid fuck, <laughs> he saw Julie Otero, and he became completely infatuated with her, so he started stalking her. He followed her home, saw where she lived, and over a period of several weeks, he watched her and her family. He learned their routines, their schedules, and he slowly started to plan out what he was going to do. Now, his original idea was to only murder Julie. That's all he wanted to do. He didn't plan on committing a quadruple homicide, okay. but he just kind of fumbled into it, and that's what happened. Oh, God. The murders took place on January 15th, 1974. Dennis went to the library early that morning to get the Otero's phone number, and he called them several times before going to their house. He wanted to hear Julie answer the phone to make sure that she was there. Wow. And then he arrived at the Otero home a little after 8 in the morning. He oh. did this shit in, in the, the morning. morning. Early in the morning, yes. What? 8 o'clock. Dennis jumped the fence in the backyard. And as he started approaching the house, he noticed that there were dog paw prints in the snow. And this scared him a little bit because he didn't account for a dog being present. Mm -hmm. He considered ditching his plan for a few seconds. But then very sadly, he just continued onward. He'd made up his mind that he was going to go in anyway. He didn't care. And the first thing he did after he made up his mind to go through with this plan uh, was to immediately cut the phone line with a pair of wire cutters. He didn't want Julie calling for help. So Dennis came prepared for the attack. He was wearing his Air Force jacket because he thought that maybe Julie seeing the jacket would make her feel more safe and secure before he killed her. And in his own words, Dennis said, quote, I had my cords with me. Some were already pre-knotted. I had a gun, a 22 LR Woodsman auto target pistol, end quote. When Dennis enters the house, he realizes that Julie isn't the only one home as he'd hoped. Her husband, Joseph, was there as well. Okay. He had actually taken off of work that day because he had a recent car accident and he cracked one of his ribs pretty badly. Oh. So he was at home tending to his ribs and resting. Dennis did not account for that at all. He really only accounted for Julie being there. And not only was Joseph there with Julie, but their two youngest kids, nine-year-old Joseph Jr. and 11-year-old Josephine, were also there as well. 
Remember, this is happening around 8.30 in the morning, so the two youngest children hadn't gone off to school yet. Right. The three older children, Charlie, Danny, and Carmen, they had left to go to school. Mm -hmm. So they were the only three family members not present in the home, and the extra people being in the home made Dennis panic, so he just kind of wings the rest of it. So Dennis tells them that he's a criminal on the run and that he was in need of some money and food. He wanted to make them all believe that he was just simply going to rob them and not kill them. So he's just playing this really sick game. In his own words, quote, I told them I needed money and food and was wanted by police. I was AWOL from the Air Force. I located the car keys, purse, and his wallet. They told me the car was empty on gas. I guess they didn't have very much money. Mr. Otero said that I could take the typewriter from the Southwest bedroom and hawk it for gas money and to just leave them alone, end quote. So Dennis then forces Joseph to take their dog and put it outside in the snow. The dog was a small, short-haired dog named Lucky. And as Joseph was doing this, Dennis had his gun loaded and he was threatening him and Julie to do as he said, kids included. And this is really, really sad to think about. But Joseph Otero was trying his best to get his family to calm down. Like he's telling them, you know, please calm down. Let's do what he says. He won't hurt us. Let's just make it through this together. Right, right. It is fucking sad. He lulled them into like a, a false sense of security. Yes. And that it, that's what he specifically loved to do. He wanted to make these people believe that they were out of harm's way completely when he knew he was going to kill them. That was what he got off on. So Dennis first bound everyone with medical tape. But after everyone started saying that their wrist hurt, he changed the bindings to white clothing line cords, uh, which that's fucking weird, too, because it's like he somewhat takes into consideration the comfort of his victims, like yeah. even though he knows he's going to kill yeah, them. I was just thinking that exact thing. Yeah, it's really, really weird. It touches back on that thing that we just talked about where he wants his victims to feel as if they're not in danger. And it's just so fucked up. Dennis even laid out a pillow and a coat on the floor for Joseph to lay on because Dennis knew he had cracked his ribs. What? Yeah, it's fucking crazy. I don't understand I'm it. I'm so confused. So it wasn't long after that before Dennis decided that he was going to gag and strangle everyone to death. Dennis began by taking rope and wrapping it around Joseph's neck, and Joseph goes unconscious. Dennis then moved to Julie. And he said he strangled her until she stopped moving, and then he released pressure. And keep in mind, Joseph Jr. and Josephine are watching all of this happen. They're watching Dennis Rader kill their parents. 11-year-old Josephine was crying, and she asked Dennis, quote, what's going on? And Dennis responded to Josephine by saying, quote, I put your parents to sleep, and you're next, end quote. Dennis then strangled Josephine until she passed out, and by that time, Joseph Jr. started crying, and Joseph and Julie were both waking up because he hadn't killed them. He just made them pass out. Yeah. So Dennis takes a plastic bag, and he puts it over Joseph Jr.'s head. The entire time he's doing this, Julie is crying and pleading with Dennis for him to stop. She's literally watching her nine-year-old be slowly suffocated to death with a bag. So after Joseph Jr. quit moving, Dennis used a clove hitch knot to strangle Julie Otero to death. Her last words were her telling Dennis, quote, may God have mercy on your soul, end quote. I just got fucking chills, bro. It is horrible. It is absolutely horrible. I hate fucking Dennis Rader. I hate him. After Julie died, 
Dennis put a flower print pillowcase over her head, and her hands and feet were bound with cord. Dennis then placed a bag over Joseph Otero's head, and he used a belt to wrap around his neck as well to secure the bag in place. And then Dennis grabbed Joseph Jr. and carried him to his bedroom. Dennis placed a second bag over his head, tightening it down with cord, and then he laid this nine-year-old child face down in his bed, and Joseph Jr. suffocated to death within minutes. Dennis went back into the living room, to see if Joseph Otero had died, and to Dennis's surprise, he saw that Joseph started trying to bite holes through the bag, and that's not something Dennis had accounted for. So he then placed a t-shirt and then a second bag over Joseph's head, and oh then he God. applied pressure with the belt until Joseph died. And the last member of the Otero family that was killed that day was 11-year-old Josephine. And I'm just telling you guys now, this is rough. Like, I genuinely don't want anyone going in blind. Like, I'm ju I am just feel the need to give that warning. Yeah. This is horrible. Like, absolutely horrible. Okay. Dennis decided that he wanted to hang her. So he made a noose with four loops in it, and he began searching the house for a place to attach it. He found a sewer pipe down in the basement. So Dennis hung this noose up by that pipe, and then he went back upstairs to go and get Josephine. When Dennis got to her, she was barely awake. So he picked her up and started carrying her down the stairs. And Dennis said in his own words that as he was doing this, Josephine didn't cry or fight him at all. So when Dennis gets her down to the basement, he takes off her pants and he pulls her underwear down to her ankles. He then lifted her shirt and tore her bra, and then he pulled her shirt back down. After doing all of this, Dennis then used more cord to rebind Josephine's hands and feet. And then he asked her if her parents had a camera anywhere in the house because he wanted to take a picture of her bound up with her underwear dangling at her ankles. What the fuck? And after Josephine told Dennis no that they didn't have a camera, Dennis picked her up and placed her standing on the floor beneath the noose. Josephine, who was crying, scared and confused by everything that was happening, she asked Dennis, quote, what's going to happen to me, end quote. And Dennis told her, quote, don't worry, sweetheart, you're going to be in heaven with your parents and your brother tonight, end quote. So Dennis said that he was overwhelmed with excitement as Josephine's eyes cried, showing fear and shock. He then lifted this child off of the floor, placed the noose around her neck where he tightened it, and then he dropped her. She was hanging with her toes inches from the floor. And as Josephine hanged, dying, he pulled his pants down and masturbated himself into climax. After Dennis was done, he attempted to clean the house a bit. He stole a watch and a radio from Joseph Otero, and then he made himself a glass of water, and he drank it, and then he rinsed his fucking cup out. Wow. He also turned up the thermostat in the home to make it hot. He had read that high temperatures can speed up decomposition, so this was his goal. He was hoping to maybe fuck with the time of death, so this is what he did. <sighs> and after he turned up the thermostat, he stole the Otero's car and he drove it to a local Dylan's parking lot. But then this fumbling fucking idiot forgot that he left things at the crime scene. Don't tell me he went back. Not only did he go back, he went back in his own fucking car. Like, not only did he go back to the crime scene, but he ditched the car that he stole, went and got his own personal <sighs> vehicle, and then he went back. What? Yes. And when he got back, he found the wire cutters in the backyard where he left them. So, like, I mean, he's just a fucking dumbass. After he left the house, Dennis went into the woods where he burned all of his evidence. 
like his gloves, his written plans for the murder, his cords, just all of it. He burned everything. But burning evidence was for nothing because after he burned the evidence, he created more evidence by <laughs> writing in detail the events of the Otero murders in his journal. What? Wow. Again, I'm not kidding. He's a fucking idiot. And he explained way later to police that his fantasy was to enslave the Oteros in the afterlife. He said he wanted Julie and Joseph to be his servants, while Josephine and Joseph Jr. would be his sex slaves. And that's fucking disturbing in itself. But the thing that bothers me the most about all of this is that after Dennis brutally murdered the Oteros, including two children, he cleaned up, went home to his wife and his child. And acted like nothing happened. Dennis and Paula already had Brian at this point because he was born in 1973 and their second child, Carrie, was born in 1978. So he just got to go home and be, and he was being a dad and a husband within hours of brutally killing these people and their children. And that makes me infuriated. Like that infuriated is, so is not even the word. So continuing on with what happened after the Otero murders, and this is just fucking sad. Like, I cannot even tell you the the amount of tears that I shed over this. But Julie and Joseph, they were found by their three surviving children. Oh, yeah, because they were at school. They were at school when everything happened, right? So when they got home, they found their parents the exact way that Dennis had left them. And it is heartbreaking oh my god and they had to find everybody like that so the oldest 15 year old charlie otero was the last of the three surviving kids to make it home that day and when he got home he was immediately off put because he saw that the garage was open and his mom's car was gone which was very unusual for that time of day and when charlie walked around back he saw that their dog lucky was outside in the snow And Lucky was strictly an indoor dog. Like, this poor dog did not do good outside in the cold. Yeah. So Charlie just panicked. He's wondering who in the hell put their dog outside. And the vibes only got more sinister when he entered the house. Charlie immediately notices upon entering the home that his mother's purse and his dad's wallet are just strewn everywhere. Like, the contents are just all over the counters. And Charlie knew this wasn't like his mom at all. Julie and Joseph were both very, very neat and tidy people. So things being thrown over the countertops was just something that did not happen. Right. It was out of the norm. That was way out of the norm. Julie nor Joseph would ever just throw their shit everywhere. That's just not how they lived. And while Charlie is processing this, he's trying to figure out what's going on. He hears one of his siblings call out to him. Remember, Charlie was the last one home that day, so his uh, younger siblings, Danny and Carmen, had gotten there before he did. Charlie hears Carmen say, quote, Charlie, please, please come quick. Mom and dad are playing a bad joke on us, end quote. Oh, my God. So Charlie runs down the hall to his parents' bedroom, and this is where he sees his father, Joseph Otero, on the ground. His hands and feet are bound with clothing line cord. He has a belt tightly wrapped around his neck with a bag over his head. And Charlie also sees his mom, Julie. She was laying face down on the bed, also bound at the hands and feet. She had clothing line cord wrapped tightly around her neck, and a flower print pillowcase was over her head. So Charlie and his two younger siblings saw their parents like this. And I I don't even know how to begin to imagine what this did to these poor kids. 
Yeah. Charlie Otero is quoted saying, quote, I ran down the hall, went into their bedroom and saw my mother on the bed, my father on the floor, and my heart just got ripped out of my chest. My life changed instantly. When I looked at my mother, she was tied up. It didn't even look like my mother. My dad's tongue was halfway bit off. He had a belt around his neck and my mom was beaten. Her nails were busted up and they were cold. We tried to get the ligatures undone, the belt undone, and then I realized this was for nothing and I had to get my brother and sister out of the house, end quote. Charlie tried calling the police, but the phone line had been cut. So 14-year-old Danny Otero ran to the neighbor's house, crying and screaming, begging them to call the police. And when officers arrived on scene, Charlie, Danny, and Carmen were all in their front yard, screaming and crying. Oh, my God. And at this point... Charlie, Danny, nor Carmen knew that Josephine and Joseph Jr. had also been murdered. They didn't find them. They just found their parents. They thought it was only their parents that were killed. Yeah. And Charlie even told the officers when they got there that he didn't know where his two youngest siblings were. So the officers went inside, and that's where they also found Joseph Jr., and then they found Josephine in the basement. She was still dangling above the ground by a rope when she was found. And I say this very loosely because I don't think there's a way you could say luckily in this situation. But I am happy that Charlie uh, or Danny or Carmen, I'm glad they didn't find Josephine or Joseph Jr. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad they didn't find them either. Finding your parents in that way is already bad enough. But just thinking about what would have happened to them had they found their younger siblings, especially Josephine. Yeah. I, I just don't even know. Like that is just fucking horrific to think about. And these crimes absolutely shocked this whole city. In 1974, when these murders happened, violent crime was almost unheard of in this area. This was a time where people left their doors unlocked at night and neighbors could just go into your house and it was fine, you know? So for a quadruple homicide this brutal to happen is just unheard of. I mean, a quadruple is just unheard of. That's rare in itself, but especially in this time, 1974 in Kansas, like this... This whole town was just terrified. The 70s were filled with serial killers. And, right. and I could imagine like, you know, you think that you're safe because all the serial killers are like in California or whatever. But when it but, happens in your home yeah. near you, it's a whole different, you know, a that's, whole different level. That's so devastating. So this whole town was just terrified. That sense of safety and security that everyone had was ripped away immediately. Oh, my God. So if the security is out of the fucking window, everybody's going to want ADT. No. You're, you have a little bit of intuition into this oh, case. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And that was not a fact that I knew or, you know, I yeah. did not know this. I you're, literally you're, just you're guessed You're getting this. the picture. No. You're getting the picture. No. So Charlie Otero, I want to talk about him for a second. He had a very rough time. After this happened, I mean, imaginably, of course. I, I'm sure all of the surviving children did, but Charlie was just destroyed. He was the oldest. So I felt like that he just kind of took on a, a different kind of burden with yeah. all of it because he was the oldest. He immediately had to grow up. And you have to keep in mind, too, that these murders went unsolved for 30 years. Charlie and his siblings went three decades without knowing who murdered their family, like no justice, no nothing. Just your parents and your two siblings are brutally murdered, and then 30 years, you know nothing. You have absolutely no answers. Charlie 
in recent years has been very outspoken about his life and the things that he went through as a result of everything. Uh, and he lived a tough life for a while. Like, you know, he went way off track. Uh, there was some substance abuse going on. Uh, he also was dealing with paranoia. I, I mean, mean, who could blame him? He became convinced that whoever had killed his family was going to come back and finish the job. Like, he became consumed in that, that this mystery person had just brutally killed his family. I mean, that's understandable to think that, though. So he's like, you know, are they going to come back and get me? And this ate him for years. Like, it, it's so heartbreaking. And even though he did have a rough period of his life, I am happy to say that Charlie Otero did make a comeback. And eventually he took up with his faith and he turned his life around and he learned how to deal with his uh, grieving and his pain. And that's just it's inspiring and it's amazing and I'm happy for him. But it also still just breaks my heart because like he he didn't deserve that. He, he shouldn't have had to go he, through any of he that. He shouldn't have had to get stronger from that. Like he should have just been able to live happily with his family. And that's just, you know. It just it makes me sad. But I did want to point that out that, you know, Charlie Otero has done several uh, televised interviews on YouTube talking about his experience and how he had to cope with this. So if you ever want to, like, check any of that out, it's actually really, really like it's cool. It's really cool to see that he took something so horrible and eventually he turned his life and his family, you know, in, into the driving force of his life. Yes. And I think that's just so amazing. So moving forward after the Otero murders. Dennis absolutely immersed himself in the media coverage of it. He was watching everything unfold on the news. He was just soaking the shit up, stroking his ego. He loved watching the whole city of Wichita become consumed in fear and panic. He even started saving newspaper clippings regarding the Otero murders. He would start cutting them out and collecting them, and he kind of made this makeshift scrapbook type thing that he called his hidey hole. Or his Heidi Hole file. Heidi Hole and Sparky Bang. Sparky Big Time. Sparky Big Time. Excuse me. Motherfucking Heidi Hole. Heidi Hole. Like, do I even do I even need to comment on that? No, actually, I don't. I'm gonna continue before I go off on like a fucking wild like a three rant. minute tangent. Yeah. Within two months of committing the Otero murders. Dennis was already prowling and trolling for his next victim. He was just up and ready to go and kill someone else. And get this shit, hoo-wee. He took it upon himself to start strengthening his hands. Oh, he, my He God. really wanted to strengthen his hands. Because if you remember what I said way in the intro, Dennis didn't know what the fuck he was doing when he murdered the Oteros. He hadn't quite learned how to strangle someone to death quickly. So he was like, oh, my hands need to be stronger. Right. He greatly underestimated just how hard the job was. So, you know, he had Julie and Joseph Otero pass out and wake up a couple of times before he successfully killed them. And when the officers processed that scene, they saw all of these strangulation marks on the necks of Julie and Joseph. And they're freaking out thinking, holy shit, you know, this guy was strangling and reviving and then strangling and reviving these people for hours. He was torturing them. Yeah, that's what the media ran with. But that's not what happened. He uh, just yeah. he didn't know how to do it. He was a fucking idiot. More sensationalism. So after the Otero murders, he started planning how he could make his next murder go more smoothly. So he's like, you you know, maybe if my hands were just a little stronger, if my hands were just a little stronger, I could I could strangle everyone quicker. That, that has to be the key. That has to be it. 
So this stupid fuck started obsessively using stress balls to try and make his hand stronger. And yes, you heard me right. Not <laughs> lifting weights, not working out, not any of that. Squeezing motherfucking stress balls all of the time. He was just squeezing them. Do you, do you, do you not get the vibe how enraged I am at this motherfucker? Oh. Like how how much I genuinely cannot stand him. Oh my god, not the stress ball. He's just walking around squeezing them. <laughs> just like, oh, I, I got I got to get my hands stronger. I I got to strengthen my hands. Like, let me not exercise or build muscle the right fucking way and actually be smart about it. I'm just going to strengthen my hands by squeezing oh. stress balls like I'm done. I'm so done. I'm going to exercise my whole arm by just squeezing my hand. I'm just, I'm done. I'm so done with him. So Dennis oh, started, no. he started prowling and trolling again by March of 1974. The Otero murders happened in January. So like I said earlier, not even two months after that, and he's already on the search. He started regularly sneaking into other houses in, in the neighborhood uh, where he would watch women through their windows. This is something he did pretty much his whole life. But yeah, he's prowling. He really wanted to find another victim or project, as he liked to call his potential victims, because again, he's a fucking loser. Project. Projects. What are we fucking DIYing here? Like what? I'm telling you, like there, and it, you don't even know. Like you, this is baby. We are on the ocean, miles away from this iceberg that we will eventually be at the tip of. That is where we're at in this story. Can we so see just the iceberg from this point. A little, but not really. Okay. Yeah. I just need to know how close we are to impact. We got a ways to go, baby. Because I have to find a flotation device for my asshole. Yes. For mine asshole. Absolutely. <laughs> You're definitely going to need that. So going back to what I was saying. Asshole overboard. <laughs> Dennis really wanted to make sure that he could confidently learn the layout of whichever house he was going to invade. He also wanted to make sure that there were no men present because, you know, he was caught way off guard by Joseph Otero being home with Julie the day he killed them. So he did not want that happening again. Yeah. Dennis eventually spotted 21-year-old Catherine Bright. He described her as a, quote, dishwater blonde who fit his fantasy profile perfectly. And, like, how rude is that? Fantasy profile? Yes. And dishwater blonde. He described this girl blonde. as a dishwater blonde because he's a rude, stupid fuck. So Catherine was checking her mailbox when Dennis saw her. He just happened to be sneaking around people's houses that night, and very sadly, she became his next target. Something else that made Dennis officially decide to kill Catherine was the fact that her home address and street name had the number three in it. And Dennis really liked the number three. Her address was 2317 East 13th Street. So he was like, oh, yeah, man, she's, she's dishwater blonde and there's threes. It's a sign. I'm just, I got to kill her. This is it. Did it happen at 333? It did not. But uh, I'm pretty sure his stupid ass tried to plan for that. The dumb fuck. Oh, my God. The universe is giving me a sign. So for several days, Dennis drove by Catherine's house repeatedly, learning her routine, learning the layout of things. Just, you know, everything. And he was still just a squeezing his stress balls. <laughs> Dennis named his plan for this murder Project Lights Out. Oh, my. Okay, this is just sounding like a really bad sitcom where the writers are just going left field. I'm telling like you. Like this. 
but very sadly, this is real. He thought he was just so badass. Project Lights Out. Project I'm done. Lights Out. I'm done. I promise you he was squeezing them stress balls when he came up with that shit. <laughs> so Dennis confirmed based on a few days of watching Catherine that she more than likely lived alone because he didn't see a man at the property. So this made him even more excited. He just had this whole thing going in his head and in his own words, quote, I was feeling really good about this one, end quote. So now let's go to the day of April 4th, 1974. Very, very sadly, this is the day that Dennis chose to murder Catherine. That day, he had class. And I actually think I left this out of the introduction, but in the fall of 1973, Dennis started attending the Wichita State University. So he was still a student at the time of both the Otero murders and the murder of Catherine Wright. Oh, my God. So he had class that day, and when he got out of class, he drove to a local shopping center where he changed his clothes into an outfit that he pre-packed. Then he drove his car back towards the Wichita State University. He parked, and then he walked to Catherine's house, and he had a hit kit with him. Uh, he liked to call his murders hits, so his little pre-packed thing was a hit kit. Like, um. I'm, I'm fucking telling you. So in this hit kit, Dennis had two knives— a 357 Magnum with extra bullets, a black ski mask, a gray cap, some books, and some sort of like over-the-shoulder holster for his gun because he wanted to wear it over his shoulder to like, I, I don't even fucking know, but this is what he had, okay? He was going to wear this hat and carry his books and stuff, and he was going to knock on the door pretending to be some sort of student looking for his tutor's house. He was going to knock and pull the whole, oh, you know, I'm just a student uh, passing by. I'm looking for my tutor. Is this the right address type shit? That was his original plan. But when he got to Catherine's house, he noticed that she wasn't there. So instead of waiting around, he decided to break in through the back door and wait for her. So once he gets in, he starts walking around. He's trying to figure out how he's going to do everything. And then all of a sudden, he hears a car pull into the driveway. So he goes to look and he sees Catherine walking towards the house with a male. So Dennis fucking panicked because, again, he was not prepared for this. He did not expect a male to be there. And this male just happened to be Catherine's little brother, 19-year-old Kevin Bright. As soon as Catherine and Kevin opened the door to the home, Dennis confronted them by putting a gun in their face. He was just in panic mode entirely. He said, fuck the plan, fuck Project's Lights Out, this is just what I'm going to do. He, he just sounds like he's one of those people that like sings his own theme song in his head when he's like doing shit. Literally. Just, doo -doo -doo -doo, literally. Doo -doo -doo -doo. That's literally what he does. Like what the fuck? So Dennis pulled the same shit with Kevin and Catherine that he pulled with the Oteros. He tells them that he's a criminal on the run from California and that he just <laughs> needed money in a car. So Dennis forced Catherine and Kevin into one of the back bedrooms, and he forced Kevin to tie Catherine up with her own scarves from her drawer. And then Dennis ties Kevin to a bedpost. After that, he takes Catherine into another room, and he finishes tying her up, and he fastens her to a chair. So Catherine and Kevin are in two different rooms now. And Dennis also turned up the radio really loud to drown out any possible screaming. So Dennis first went to strangle Kevin because his goal was to get him out of the way so he could have more time to be creative with Catherine. So as Dennis begins to strangle Kevin, Kevin breaks his bindings and he starts fighting Dennis back. A physical struggle ensued, but Dennis quickly grabbed his handgun and he shot Kevin in the head. 
and he hit the floor and quit moving. So Dennis uh, went back to check on Catherine after that, and he noticed that she also started getting out of her bindings, and she was starting to put up a fight too. So while Dennis is trying to restrain Catherine, he all of a sudden hears Kevin moving in the other room. What? He was still alive, and he got up and went right back to fighting Dennis. Oh my God. Kevin actually managed to get one of Dennis's guns away from him, but when he tried to shoot Dennis, the gun was jammed. And this gave Dennis... I know, it breaks my heart. And this gave Dennis just enough time to shoot Kevin a second time in his mouth. No! He again fell to the ground. Blood went everywhere, and some of Kevin's teeth flew out of his head with the bullet. Catherine is now screaming hysterically. Dennis is panicking. He's just trying to get the shit over with. So he quickly takes out one of his knives, an eight-inch hunting knife, and he started stabbing Catherine to death. Oh, my God. Now get this fucking shit. Okay, are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. As Dennis is stabbing Catherine, Kevin got up and ran out of the house to get help. Oh, what? This kid has been shot in the head twice, and he ran outside to get help. He survived. I literally just fucking froze. Like, chills. The, the imagery. Yeah, chills. It's absolutely fucking incredible. Like, I, it's unheard of. I mean, that's a miracle. I'm sorry, but that's a miracle. It is crazy. He got shot twice, and he tried fighting Dennis twice to save his sister. Like, what a badass. Like, what a complete badass. Once Dennis saw Kevin run out the door, he started flipping shit. So he stopped stabbing Catherine. He grabbed her driver's license so he could put it in his hidey hole. And then he attempted to steal Kevin's truck. But he grabbed the wrong fucking keys because he's an idiot. When he got outside, he realized that he grabbed Catherine's keys and not Kevin's. (laughs) So Dennis ran to his own car, got in it, and he drove off. Dennis managed to make it home where he cleaned himself up and he was just chilling and just seeming all normal and stuff when his wife got home like nothing ever happened. How the fuck do you do that? Like, how do you do that? How? It's insane. It is really insane. So back at the bright scene, Catherine was left bleeding out and tied up. When Kevin ran out of the house, he managed to call police. And when officers got to the scene, they immediately rushed to Catherine. And they were able to get some information from her, but but she was losing lots of blood. She suffered 11 stab wounds with an 8-inch hunting knife. So her and Kevin were both rushed to the hospital, and very sadly... Catherine Bright passed away in the middle of her surgery. She was only 21 years old. (sighs) Kevin Bright miraculously survived the attack, though. He was in the hospital for two weeks before he was released. Like, again, just what a fucking badass. But also, I cannot imagine the pain and the survivor's guilt that he must have felt losing his sister in such a horrible way. And I mean, he fought to save her. He was fighting for her life and his life. Like, he fought through being shot twice in his head. Yeah. Like, that is just absolutely insane. And to know that he fought so hard and watched what happened to his sister happen and then for her to die, my my heart just absolutely breaks for him and her, for everybody. I just... Oh, Man, Dennis, yeah. I fucking hate you. I know. Like, you hear me over here just going, 
like that but like i am literally trying to regulate right now yeah it's tapping it's is not working it is insane <laughs> and Catherine bright would be the only person that dennis stabbed to death he was not a fan of the mess it created so he promised himself that when he went to kill again that he would never use another knife and it's like, wow, Dennis, you're such a fucking outstanding individual. Like, holy shit. Good, good on you. Good I'm, job. I'm, I'm glad that's what you took away from that. Like, I don't know. Did you think maybe you just shouldn't fucking kill people, period? But, you know, whatever. And this next part is fucking wild to me. And it really goes to show just how fucking childish and narcissistic Dennis is. But uh, in the months after the murder of Catherine Bright in October of 1974, there were some people coming to the police claiming to have some information regarding the Otero murders. There were some people coming in and, you know, giving false leads as people usually do. And when Dennis found out about this, he was furious because he didn't want anyone getting credit for his crimes. He had to have the credit for what he did. Wow. So Dennis plants a note at the local library then he called a man named Don Granger, who was working for the uh, Wichita Eagle newspaper. Mm -hmm. And Dennis tells Don that if he looks in the library in a engineering textbook called Applied Engineering Mechanics, that he would find a letter with clues in it regarding the Oteros. So Don immediately contacted the police, told them about the call, and the police go to the library to get this book. And sure enough, there's a letter in it. And I'm going to read it to you. And I will say now there are a lot of uh, grammatical errors because Dennis is a fucking idiot. But uh, I'm going to read it word for word, so bear with me. Okay. I'm just going to read it straight to you. Are you ready? Uh, Yeah, okay. Lay it on me. Quote, I write this letter to you for the sake of the taxpayer as well as your time. Those three dude you have in custody are just talking to get pub publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself with no one's help. There has been no talk either, so let's put this straight. Then Dennis proceeds to describe the Otero murders in horrific detail. He talks about everything, you know, from what he did to them to how he left them, and the letter continues. He continues, quote, I'm sorry this happened to society. They are the ones who suffer the most. It hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang-up. When this monster enter my brain, I will never know. But it is it here to stay. How does one cure himself? If you ask for help that you have killed four people, they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. I can't stop it so the monster goes on and hurt me as well as society. Society can be thankful that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at time by daydreams of some victims being torture and being mine. It a big, complicated game, my friend, of the monster play putting victims' number down, follow them, checking up on them, waiting in the dark, waiting, waiting. The pressure is great, and sometimes he run the game to his liking. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He has already chosen his next victim or victims. I don't know who they are yet. The next day after I read the paper, I will know, but it too late. Good luck hunting. P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their M.O. or by nature cannot do so, I will not change mine. The code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK. You see, he added again, they will be on the next victim. End quote. I had a... A, a fucking aneurysm? Same. I, yeah. I had a 
stroke trying to keep up with that. I... Uh, you guys listening, if you need to rewind that and listen to it again just to, just to take just, it in, then by all means do it. I struggled that reading that. Like... Illiterate is not even the word for this fucking idiot. Like, I'm, I, I, I cannot stop roasting him. I just can't. Well, baby, where, where the hell did your S's go? That is what I'm saying. Like, the illiteracy is insane. Although I did read um, oh, he, that he typed this on a typewriter, and maybe he just wasn't good at typing. He added again. Yeah, you'll see. Boy, he, that, you see, he added you again. See, he added again. That shit fucking killed me. What the me. fuck? So, at this point, the city of Wichita is in complete fear-driven panic. People are losing their minds. As I said in the beginning of this episode, it wasn't long after this, as you said, that Dennis started working for ADT Security because after the Otero murders, people were really wanting security systems. So, that's what he did. He just started installing the security systems during the peak of everyone's panic. He was really getting off on the irony of it that the, the person that these people were terrified of and were trying to protect themselves against was him, and he was the one installing their safety measures. He just got the biggest kick out of that. So it's so unoriginal that I was able to call it about. <laughs> you literally guessed I it. I literally called you it. You saw it, yes, I'm telling you. Called it. So Dennis just laid back. He did his security job. None of his co-workers liked him, <laughs> uh, evidently. He was just existing. Uh, it wouldn't be until two years later that he killed his sixth victim, which that in itself, if you look at it, is kind of scary because uh, it's one of the things that make him highly unusual as a case. Um, he's an outlier in this way because he can just turn it on and off. He can control his impulses like he kills five people within four months and then he just stops for two years and doesn't do anything and has no problem. That is scary as fuck. Right. That is truly scary. So it was on March 17, 1977, that Raider murdered a mom of three, 24-year-old Shirley Vianne. Before Shirley, Dennis had tried stalking and murdering another woman named Cheryl, but luckily she wasn't home when Dennis went to her house and he didn't want to wait around. So he, you know, he was pissed off and he just went to the next one. Uh-huh. He didn't want to wait around because he, he was like, she going to bring another dude home, watch. <laughs> Right. I, I'm telling you, he was just like, no, I'm not fucking with it. So he left no. her house and he went to the next one. So Dennis, after the attempt at Cheryl, you know, that not working out, he started walking down Hydraulic Street to see if he could troll someone else. Oh, and while walking, Dennis sees a five-year-old boy walking home. This boy's name was Steve Rilford, and he was one of Shirley's children. So Dennis goes up to Steve and he shows him a picture of his own wife and his own child. And then he asked Steve if he had seen them. Like, Dennis is using his own family picture in his murder plan. Like, I just cannot fucking believe that shit. And Be Steve... Fresh on audacity. I'm, I'm telling you. And Steve, of course, didn't know uh, who Dennis's wife or kid was. So he said no, and he kept walking. But that's what Dennis wanted. He made the interaction, and now he's watching this kid go home. And he saw which house he went to. And Dennis was thinking, oh, good golly, oh, my, this boy just has to have a mother. So he gambled it. Minutes later, Dennis shows up to Steve's house. He knocked on the door. Steve answered the same little boy from before. 
and Dennis was pretending to be a detective, and he just forced himself in. Steve also had two siblings, an older brother that was eight and a younger sister that was four. So these kids have no idea what's going on. This man literally just walks into their house. And the mother, Shirley Vianne, she heard all of the commotion and she went into the living room to see what was going on. She had been home sick that day. And when she came out of her room, she was wearing a nightgown and bathrobe. In Raider's own words, quote, I told her that I had a problem with sexual fantasies and I was going to tie her up. I pulled the blinds and turned off the TV. I said that I would tie the kids up first. They would be okay if she cooperated with me, end quote. That is so sick. Dennis then goes on to describe how Shirley was very, very upset. And at one point, she even smoked a cigarette trying to calm herself down. Dennis tried tying up one of her sons, but he started crying and screaming. And this irritated Dennis, like, a lot. So he forced all three kids into the bathroom together. And to keep the door shut, he forced Shirley to help him scoot a bed against the outside of the door so they couldn't get out. And it turns out as well, Dennis made Shirley put some blankets and toys in the bathroom beforehand. And then they put the kids in there. Dennis also said the entire time that this was happening, Shirley was crying and pleading with her kids to listen to Dennis. She was just begging them, like, please listen to me. Please go in here. I'll be back. He's not going to hurt you. You know, we'll be fine. And that breaks my fucking heart to pieces. Absolute pieces. After the bathroom door was secure, Dennis said that Shirley threw up and then he began tying her up. Going back to that weird thing he does uh, where he oddly pretends to give a fuck about the comfort of his victims, he went and got a glass of water for Shirley to drink after she threw up to help her feel better and more comfortable throughout the experience of her being killed. Oh, gee, thanks. And then after that, he taped her hands behind her back, laid her face down on the bed. He tied her legs to the bedpost, and then he wrapped white cord up her legs and her entire body. He bound her entire body with cord, like from her ankles up to her neck. After wrapping her feet all the way up her body, the cord that he had left at the end, he wrapped around her neck four times. He placed a bag over her head and he strangled her to death. And as this is happening, her three kids are stuck in the bathroom, beating on the door, screaming and crying for their mom, not knowing that she was being murdered. Dennis even recalled himself that the kids were specifically screaming at him to leave their mom alone. And I just want to rip this dude's fucking face off. Yeah, it's really bad. And Dennis shouted back at them that if they didn't shut up, he'd fucking shoot them. Dennis also commented later that he thought about hanging all three of Shirley's kids in the same manner that he had hanged Josephine Otero, but he was pressed for time. And the phone started ringing and this scared him. So he ended up stealing Shirley's underwear and then he left. He left her three kids in that bathroom screaming and crying. Some time went by and Steve, the five-year-old and his older brother who was eight, they managed to break a window and they escaped the bathroom and they ran to the neighbor's house and got them to call the police. When officers arrived on scene, they found Shirley naked and dead, laying face down on her bed. She had black tape around her ankles and hands. The white cord that was wrapped around her neck, as I said earlier, was wrapped down her entire body to her feet. And then she was tied to the bedpost. She was just completely bound. She also had a bag over her head 
and her underwear was laying next to her on the bed and there was semen on them. And although all of her children survived, they were all really young and beyond traumatized. So they unfortunately couldn't help the police with any details regarding a possible suspect. And I mean, I don't know how anyone could just come back from that. Like these poor fucking kids to just have their mother so horribly ripped away from them. And they were locked in a bathroom where they had to hear it. Yeah. And then on top of that, as I said, with the Otero murders, there was no closure of any kind for these children for decades. Her children just grew up wondering who killed their mom. They're like, you know, who is this strange man that just came in and literally locked me in a bathroom and murdered my mom? Like, I I cannot. And that is an aspect of all of these murders that really breaks my heart is knowing that these children, now adults, had to wait so long to learn the truth of what happened. Yeah. I just don't even know what to make of that. Like, do you, at that point, like, is it relief that you feel, or is it just more? A whole nother layer of anger and not understanding. Like, yeah. I, I don't even know. I just don't even know. And to make this whole thing even more twisted and to show you just how much of a fucking idiot he is, Dennis wrote a poem about Shirley Vianne shortly after he killed her in the year 1978. And that's something that you're going to see with Dennis. Mm -hmm. He likes writing poems, even though he fucking sucks at it. I mean, he obviously sucks at writing letters. He sucks at everything. He literally sucks at everything. So the poem he wrote about Shirley, I'm going to read it to you. It's called Shirley Locks. This man, okay, Shirley Locks, Heidi Hole, Sparky Big Time. Yes. Don't forget Project Lights Out. Project Lights Out. How could I forget? Oh, and also let me throw this since we're on the rant of his like stupid names. Uh, later in this case, you'll see that when he refers to the thing inside of him that makes him kill, he calls it Factor X. <laughs> I'm g- Listen. Thank you guys for tuning in. It's been fun. <laughs> if you would like to follow us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish that was I'm, the case, but I'm it's not. I'm fucking done, bro. So, so Shirley Locks, quote. Shirley Locks. Quote. Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks, wilt thou be mine? Thou shalt not scream, not yet fill the line, but lay on a cushion and think of me in death and how it's gonna be, end quote. What? a loser (laughs) and that is not the end of his poems either like i have some more poems in this episode and there's going to be one in part two so like we're not done reading his poetry just just buckle up so after the murder of shirley vian it took dennis almost nine months to pick his next victim he was out trolling one day and he happened to see 25 year old nancy fox her address was 843 south pershing street and she Another had three. Yes. And she had just gotten home. Dennis saw her. He immediately became infatuated with her. And he decided then and there that Nancy was going to be his next hit. And just like you said, he really loved the whole number three thing. He's really just with it. So over the next few weeks after he spotted Nancy, he checked her mail to see her name and where she worked. He was just going, you know, through all of her letters and stuff uh, to get as much information as possible. He also just straight up stalked her, clearly. He would ride by her house often. He followed her to her place of work, which Nancy worked at a jewelry store in Wichita. He just started slowly but surely making plans. And he also called his plan to kill Nancy, quote, PJ Fox, which meant Project Fox. Yeah, again, another... (laughs) 
another like fuckery name. This is this is I think the first fuckboy serial killer that we have come across. I mean, it's pretty bad. I don't even know if there, there's not really a word for this. I he's mean, just, definitely not the first fuckboy serial killer, but... He's the stupidest. He's the That's stu- for fucking sure. So fucking stupid. So on the night of December 8th, 1977, Dennis would put his plan into action and he would commit his seventh murder. That evening, Dennis knew that Nancy hadn't arrived home yet. So he went to her house and went around back and he started making preparations. He started by cutting her phone line with wire cutters. He then broke into her house through one of the windows. And uh, something else to note here, too, Dennis had practiced this. In between his murders when he wasn't squeezing his fucking stress balls like the little stupid fuck that he is, he would use a glass cutter on various panes of glass to, like, practice, like, getting in a window, basically. Like, he was wanting to make sure that he could break into a window or a door as smoothly as possible. Dennis described in his own words that he received a great deal of excitement and pleasure when breaking into someone's home. He described it as a particularly thrilling form of mental rape. And in his own words, quote, On a bee, which means breaking and entering, there's a powerful feeling as you enter someone's territory. The smell and fixtures surround you, and there are unexplored parts of the house with treasures to find and keep. It is a violation to them, yes. It's a sort of mental rape. I can completely understand why burglars are so attracted to it, end quote. So, like, this whole thing sounds like a really, really bad B-rated Mission Impossible movie. Right. It really, really does. But on the flip the side of that, code names it's, and, the... and you know, let me just make the note real quick. I said it in the intro. I'm, I cannot help but roast Dennis Rader. I absolutely hate him. Like he gets under my skin more than I think any other killer. Like truly he does. But roasting aside, I'm, I don't want to take away from what he did because is he a fumbling idiot? Yes. But is he also holy like fucking shit terrifying? Yes. Yes, he is. Like, it absolutely is. So I just I just wanted to make that note real quick. He is stupid, and I'm going to continue to make fun of him, but this was a scary motherfucker. Like, this was truly a scary, scary, scary man. Stupid, but very scary and no less evil or brutal. You know what I'm saying? How could you not listen to this and not make fun of it? Just... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's wild. Like, he, on the same note of him being a complete dumbass and just we can make fun of that all day long, he's also an extremely unusual case. Like, right. extremely unusual. Like, way, way fucking beyond in how he thinks and processes this shit. It really is fascinating. Going back to Nancy Fox, he successfully broke into her home through her window, and then he just kind of sat in her kitchen and waited for her. Ew. And that is... Absolutely terrifying. And again, he enjoyed a glass of water while he was waiting. Because as I've said like three times, that's just something he likes to do. It gave him this feeling that he was just doing something that he shouldn't be doing. And he enjoyed it a lot. Oh, well, I'm glad that you dirtied a dish. Right. I'm telling you, I just, Jesus, Jesus, I, I have to really reel myself back. I just, I have to reel it back. So when Nancy returned home, she was confronted by Dennis telling her, that he was struggling with some sexual issues. And he said that he just needed to tie her up, have sex with her, take some photos of the whole thing so he could beat off later, and then he'd just be on his way. Again, he's displaying this 
uber fucked up thing where he loves to make his victims feel as if they're out of harm's way. I know I've said that a couple of times, but I can't help but bring it up because he does it every time. Yeah. He loved making his victims believe that he wasn't going to kill them, even though he most definitely was. So he did this to Nancy and he told her that he wouldn't kill her if she cooperated. So according to Dennis, Nancy was like very, very upset when he told her this. I mean, what else did you fucking think was going to happen, Dennis? Right. I don't know. So he sat her down at the table and Nancy started smoking a cigarette and he started trying to have a conversation with her in order to like reel her back in and calm her down. And uh, he kept telling her that he wasn't going to kill her. Dennis also went through her purse and got her driver's license because he wanted another trophy for his hidey hole. God, I, I can never cannot get, get over, over that. that. I'm telling you. And after a few minutes, and this next part gives me chills, like completely. But after a few minutes of talking with Dennis, Nancy took one last drag from her cigarette and she told him, quote, well, let's just go ahead and get this over with so I can call the police, end quote. So like a with that, she's a bad bitch because, you know, she's just like, let me hit this cigarette. Fuck you, guy. Let's just get it over with. And then we'll, you know, I'll call the cops on you and we'll go about our day. Like, what a bad bitch. But it's also very sad and chilling because you think about from her perspective, she genuinely thought that this was going to be a situation in which this guy just did what he was going to do. It wasn't going to be fun, but she was going to walk away with her life and she was going to just, you know, call the police on him, continue on about about her life. Basically, she had no idea that she was minutes away from death. And that is just, oh, it just, it just, it makes me sad. It makes me incredibly sad. So after this, Dennis forced Nancy to go to the bathroom to undress, uh, but he forced her to keep the door open so he could watch what she was doing. And Dennis also undressed himself at the same time. So uh, here's a little bit of fucking awful imagery for you. He's just standing there naked waiting for her, which like, oh my fucking God, ew, like, ew. I literally that just makes me want to jump out of my fucking skin. So when Nancy came out of the bathroom, she was completely nude except for a sweater she was wearing. And when Dennis told her to remove it, she asked him, quote, please let me wear it. Don't make me take it off, end quote. And Dennis agreed. And Nancy also asked if the bedroom door could stay open. And Dennis also honored that request in his mind. He's just this super great good guy who makes people feel comfortable before he brutally fucking kills them. Like, again, you just you deserve a medal, Dennis. Holy shit. So according to Dennis, he asked Nancy if she had ever done anal before. And this evidently made her panic. So when Nancy started panicking, instead of just continuing his ruse that he was going to just have sex with her and then leave, he decided to show his true intentions. He handcuffed Nancy climbed on top of her, and then he started strangling her to death with a leather belt. And according to Dennis, in his own words, when he confessed this to police later, he said that as he strangled Nancy, he whispered things in her ear. In his own words, quote, Fox passed out, but I had her come back, and I whispered in her ear a bit. I told her that I was BTK. I was a bad guy. This was the torture thing. You can visualize being tied up and knowing that something is going to happen to you and you can do nothing. That's my torture, end quote. Now, 
Whether that actually happened or not, I don't know, but that's what Dennis said. It could very much be true, but it also could be him just trying to, you know, appear Make more himself seem a little more threatening and macho than he actually is, you know. But nonetheless, that is what Dennis claimed, and that's fucking bone chilling. After Nancy passed out, Dennis removed her handcuffs and then he retied her hands with her own pantyhose, and he did the same with her neck. He removed the belt and then replace the belt with pantyhose. He really wanted that aesthetic of pantyhose uh, for his photos instead of the cords and the belt and all that crazy shit and the handcuffs. And as Nancy lay on the bed dying, Dennis went through her house to look for trophies. He took some jewelry, her driver's license, and he made himself another glass of water before he turned the thermostat up and left. Damn. This is like the thirstiest motherfucker we've ever covered. Right. And get this shit, but and this blew my fucking mind, but Dennis admitted later that he thought about giving Nancy's jewelry to his wife for her to wear. Oh, my God. No. Did did you not just get, like, the, no. the chills through your whole body? No. Oh, he God. He brutally killed this girl and was going to take her jewelry and give it to his wife. And he also said in his own words that he could have possibly at some point given the jewelry to his young daughter, Carrie, to wear. Like I'm so how, grossed out. How fucked up is that? But in his, in his mind, that would be like the greatest thing because that's like his sick way of reliving it. He's seeing his wife or his daughter wear this jewelry from someone that he brutally fucking killed. Yeah. So in his way, that's like a sick, twisted way that he just gets to relive it every day. So like just just let that sink in. Like, can you imagine? So Dennis, he went home after murdering Nancy. He went home to his wife and his kids, and he pretended again as if nothing had happened. And the next day around 8.15 a.m., Dennis was just teeming with excitement. He couldn't wait to see the news coverage on Nancy's homicide. And he was thinking that it was taking too long for someone to discover her body organically. So he was like, I just can't take it anymore. I got to, like, speed this up a little. Oh, my God. So he contacts the police again? Yeah. You guessed it. So he's at breakfast with his coworkers. He slips off and he uses a payphone and he calls the police to tell them about the murder of Nancy Fox. Now... I really wanted to include his call in this episode for you guys to hear, like, the actual audio of it. But there just isn't any clean audio for me to do that. Like, nothing that's near high quality enough. It's an old phone call recording. And it's hard to make out unless you have captions or something. Mm-hmm. So I just I just thought it would be pointless because you quite literally can hardly hear it. Um, So I unfortunately did not include that today, but if you would like to go and listen to that phone call, it's really easy to find on YouTube and you can actually see the captions for it. And, you know, you'll you'll take it in a lot better than what I could do if I put it here. Right. But yeah, Dennis calls 911 and he tells them, quote, you will find a homicide at 834 South Pershing. It's Nancy Fox, end quote. Then he drops the phone and walks off. So that's chilling as fuck that this man literally called and reported his own murder. Even though the call was recorded, authorities were unable to match it with anything. They still couldn't identify who this person was. And keep in mind, too, that we are in the 1970s. Yeah. So technology and DNA and forensics and just all that stuff was nowhere near like it is today. So nothing happened. 
the media coverage on the Nancy Fox murder didn't please Dennis at all either. It wasn't near as big and flashy as he thought it was going to be, and he got butthurt about that. Wow. So just three weeks later, in January 1978, Dennis mailed a copy of his Shirley Locks poem to the Wichita Eagle. He wanted to antagonize the authorities a little bit, uh, so he mailed that poem, and nothing happened. He didn't get a response, and he got way even more butthurt after that. He's like, y'all are ignoring me? Oh, my God. No. 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 I I wrote you a poem? I deserve a response. I deserve a response. And I deserve a good response, too. It better be good. (laughs) That's literally his attitude. So, like, when he didn't get a response for this poem, about a a month later, uh, February 10th, 1978, he decided to write a four-page letter to the Wichita Eagle, as well as the uh, local news station in Wichita called KAKE-TV. Or Cake TV, I guess you could call it. I'm not sure. I like Cake TV. But in this letter, Dennis talked about how he murdered the Oteros, along with Shirley Vianne and Nancy Fox. And he even alluded to another murder that he committed that was unidentified. But we know now that he's talking about Catherine Bright. Right. He just didn't name her in this letter, but he inserted himself into it, if that makes sense. He included a drawing of a woman who was bound and gagged, uh, which I believe this was him drawing Nancy. And he also provided a shit ton of information regarding all of the crime scenes, like how all of the bodies were found, how they died, you know, information that only the killer would have. And he also included another poem. All right. Lay it on me. And this one was about Nancy and he called it O oh, Death to Nancy. And I'm going to I'm gonna read that poem for uh for you now. So quote What is that I can see? Cold icy hands taking hold of me. For death has come, you all can see. Hell has opened its gate to trick me. O oh, death O oh, death Can't you spare me over for another year? I'll stuff your jaws till you can't talk. I'll bind your legs till you can't walk. I'll tie your hands till you can't make a stand. And finally, I'll close your eyes so you can't see. I'll bring sexual death unto you for me. Signed, BTK. So he literally took the song, Oh Death. Yes. You know literally, what I'm talking about? Yes, that's oh literally what he did. Day. That's literally what he did. Right? So he took that song and he made a fucking BTK parody and then mailed it to the fucking well, authorities. Yes. Yes. He damn sure did because he was butthurt that they didn't respond to him. That is literally what he did. And also, let me say, too. Let I'm me sorry, say. But I'm laughing because... Of how stupid he is. No, trust me. It's insane. He's a child. Like, it is insane. You have every right to laugh at that because he's just so stupid. Okay. He's so stupid. And also, get this. In the letter he sent, he made it a point to say that he wasn't satisfied with the media coverage on his latest crimes. He even said, quote, you know, a paragraph would have been enough. How many people do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? End quote. Wow. And at the end of this letter, (laughs) this shit is going to take you. It took me. But at the end, end of this letter, Dennis states 
that he wanted to be known as BTK, bind them, torture them, kill them. But he also included some backup options just in case the police didn't like BTK. Oh, my God. So, like, Project fucking lights out. But- so, literally, it, he was like, yeah, so this is me. I'm BTK. I do BTK things. So, just uh, call me that if you would, please. I really like that one. But also, if those options aren't chill and you don't like it, I provided a list of backup names. So, you can, like, choose one. Okay, thanks. Just let me know what you decide. I'll be here. <laughs> That's literally what he did. That is literally what he did. And do you want to know what these backup names were? Would you Would you like to hear them? Like, this is shit you can't make up. Would you like to know his backup options? I mean, it can't get any better than Sparky Big Time oh, or it, it PJ get, Fox. It gets or... better. It gets better. Oh, do God. you want to hear his backup names? Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> What's the backup names? So the first one is the BTK Strangler, which is dumb as fuck because that's literally bind, torture, kill, strangler, (laughs) which that doesn't make any fucking sense. The Poetic Strangler. Oh, oh, because we have to get philosophical with it. The Asphyxiator. (laughs) The Bondage Psycho or the Bondage Strangler. The Wichita Executioner. (laughs) And my two personal favorites, the Wichita Hangman and the Garot Phantom. (laughs) Motherfucker didn't even use a Garot and he just wants them to... That's like that's like the Garot Phantom. The Garot Phantom. That's like going to your fucking boss and being like, "Hey, bro, I know I have all these responsibilities, but like, could you give me a better title?" Yeah, he was literally like, "I I just got this list, but like, if you would, I like BTK, but just let me know what you think, though." Yeah, yeah, and you know what? You can actually brainstorm on those names and get back to me with which ones you like. Either way, I deserve a name. Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks. Sign Dennis. He's really so stupid, but he genuinely really did that shit. Like, I will forever just be done with this man. I can't. And yeah, you guys, that's going to conclude part one of my BTK coverage. Good old Dennis the Menace. My stomach hurts. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I felt like this was a good place to stop because after Dennis murdered Nancy, he stopped killing for eight years. Wow. Eight years. He murdered Nancy in 1977, and he didn't kill again uh, until 1985, I believe. So, yeah, I just feel like that's a good way to break up the information. So when we come back next week for part two, we're going to talk about, like, you know, what he did in that eight-year period when he had his hiatus. We're going to go through his remaining three murders, his wild game of cat and mouse with the police, him getting caught, just like all of it. And next week will be, again— the conclusion for this case, because I refuse to talk about Dennis Rader for three weeks. I'm not putting myself nor any of you through that. <laughs> well, all I can tell you, my friend, is I am uncomfortable. Yeah, uncomfortable. Yeah. You made me snort. It's bad. Did you hear that? I oh, did. my God. 
it's really, really bad. So there's not a whole lot to say at the end of this, you guys. Like, I, I've made it pretty clear how I feel about this case throughout the episode. So look forward to next week with part two. We will be finishing up and then we can move on to something else. We are going to give you guys somewhat of a mental health break soon because you we've covered some horrible shit the past few weeks like we all need a little break we might come in with some spooky stuff i mean we just really don't know either way we're gonna finish this next week and i'm i'm looking forward to it because i'm so over it i'm so over it and while we were recording today's episode we literally just got an email back from patreon saying that our new creator page is up and running Yay. So we are going to make sure that the links that are in the show notes are updated with the right URL and we will make sure and update all of our social media as well. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It's going to be lots of fun. I'm glad it's somewhat figured out and it didn't take like over a week or something crazy like that. Right. So hopefully it is smooth sailing from this point. This account will not get deleted. <laughs> it is not going to get deleted. It will not. Say it with me. It will not, it will get, not deleted. get deleted. So that's where I'm just going to wrap up everything, you guys. I'm ready to get off of here. I'm so done with Dennis. I know you guys probably feel the same. So if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our... Jesus. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And we're not going to announce Twitter anymore like we said last week or the week before because we're just not going to use it because X is dumb. That being said, until next time. Bye. 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 Uh-huh.